All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast, episode 256. It is September 29th. I don't know about you, but it's the second to last day of the quarter for me. So I'm on edge. Uh, I'm drinking coffee. I'm updating DocuSign every 32 seconds. I'm a stress ball. Uh, so we're going to keep the intro short and sweet today. Um, super pumped for a great conversation with Ryan. New Ryan is the founder and CEO of Vendor, which is uh, a, a new platform, relatively new, for helping SaaS companies you know, sell and, and buy their solutions together uh, and create some more efficiency in the market. Formerly, he was running enterprise sales at Envision. Formerly, formerly, he was uh, you know, really cut his teeth in sales at HubSpot for almost six years, coming from uh, entry-level sales to, uh, up to the director of sales, ton of promotions in between. Uh, he was at KPMG before that, started a few different companies that didn't pan out um, before a vendor and before getting into sales. Uh, and we talk about his whole journey. So we talk about uh, what it was like to transition from a big four accounting firm to the world of sales, talk about his come up at HubSpot, getting promoted, starting a company, what he's seeing in the B2B sales space. It's a great conversation. Uh, I it, you know, personally got fired up talking to Ryan, super inspired by his story. And um, as someone who wants to run a business someday, uh, is, is definitely inspired by what he has to say in the mission that he's on. So uh, definitely give him some love. Before we get to the episode, let's do a quick shout out to our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Postal.io. Postal creates more meaningful marketing experiences. Uh, so it helps you to um, create a better connection with your customers and prospects, right? Sending gifts uh, to pro you know, prospects or customers, right? Instead of like a, a Starbucks gift card, you can send something from the local brewery or the florist on the street corner, whatever it might be to help create that bond, make it more personable, make a deeper connection in this world where I'm not taking clients to, uh, you know, steak dinners or coffees or drinks on the last week of the quarter. It's a really great way to break the ice uh, and break the mold and, and try to kind of shake things up and, and build a relationship and, you know, try to make them feel special. And I think that's a, a huge part of sales is how do you differentiate yourself? How do you build trust? How do you build a relationship? And, uh, and this is one tool in your toolkit. So give them some love at postal.io. Um, Otherwise, you can feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place, Tom Alamo. I'm Tommy Tahoe on all other social media. Uh, let's get into my conversation with Ryan New. Let's go. All right. Hailing from Boston, Mass., Ryan New, CEO of Vendor. Good morning and welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's always good to, not a Boston native, but always good to talk to someone that's, uh, that's living out in New England, in my old stomping grounds, uh, out in South Boston. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a native, uh, born in Michigan, raised in Ohio, but I've been here since 07. Still root for the Browns, but uh, <laughs> go to the occasional Red Sox game. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that about the Browns. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Boston's got kind of like, I feel like a growing tech scene coming up um just a, a lot of like budding startups that i'm starting to see populate there i think it's been big for like the medical and, and bio uh tech for a while but I, i'm starting to see more SaaS build up there yeah you know i think yeah you know, i spent a lot of time at hubspot and they early days they were always like we want to do like the paypal mafia we want that to be the hubspot mafia one day and i think it's actually starting to happen which is really cool and we're excited to be a part of that 
And, and then, yeah, a lot of other great ones. And it's, it's, it's not just B2B SaaS. You've got like the HubSpots, the Clavios, the Drifts, uh, the yep. Salsifies, but then it's also like the B2Cs. You got uh, DraftKings and Wayfair. And so mm. uh, it, it is definitely starting to become a, a booming, um, you know, destination for, for technology companies. I love it. I love it. So let's get to, uh, let's get to you uh, in your career a little bit. So I know you came out of school going straight into uh, the KPMG, you know, the big four uh, accounting world. Walk me through, like, wh- where was your head at at that time? Like in college, deciding to go there. Um, and obviously you've made some pretty drastic changes since then, but, but where were you at in the college days? Oh, you know what? I, I think I, I don't know is the, is the short <laughs> answer because I ended up in accounting. And um, not to disparage the, the industry, it's just, it wasn't for me. And yeah. I remember, so I went to college at Charleston and um, I actually spent my freshman year at University of Delaware. Then I transferred to College of Charleston. I think I was just all over the place. And when looking at the, the curriculum, I just remember like I had to take like, a, like an oceanography class in college. Like, what the heck am I doing? And my major was accounting and that came from, my dad was an accountant and he was yeah. also a really good accountant. He loved it. And like, he just... He's like Rain Man. He just sees the numbers, and for me, I don't. And so, uh, I remember his advice was always uh, just just leave college, hopefully with a skill set and just one idea. Accounting might be a good skill set because you get to learn the balance sheet. Uh, you've got a lot of great jobs out there, so you'll probably be able to land a job. But um, so I, I did it. I, that's what I pursued. But throughout college, I just remember being like, "This is not." what I'm interested in and, and I'm not interested and I'm not good at it, but I didn't really know what else was out there. Like at least at the time there weren't any sales courses there. It was just like, you, you just graduate with like a general business degree, uh, liberal arts degree, or in my case, accounting. And then like day one, I'm at KPMG and, um, I was like, wow, this is, this is the professional world now. And I guess I'm not, there's no such thing as potentially loving your job. Yeah. That's, which is, is kind of a bummer because you go from, you know, the world in college, like I didn't know, I only knew about like five jobs. There's like, you're in accounting, you were like going to be in marketing, you know, and like try to be like the, the brand person at Nike. Uh, you know, you're going to be like in investment banking and then, or you're going to be like an artist or something or, or like a doctor, like that was it. And so um, there was no talk about uh, like sales or B2B sales or anything like that um, in college. And so um, it, that makes sense that your dad was an accountant. I'm curious, where, where did you get mentally at KPMG that made you, because you were there for a few years, no, like that made you want to like get out and make a, a total left turn. So a couple of things happened. I think, you know, I remember, so I was on the audit side. So in yep. accounting or big four, it's usually like audit, tax or consulting. And I was on the audit side, which meant my job was to go to other companies. They had to pay for us to be there. Like they, they had to get audited, but they were required to do it. So they had to pay a bunch of money to have you come into their office and ask them a bunch of questions to like the executive team. And like, they don't want to be doing this. And so Every single day, the, the part of that job that that really drove me nuts was that I felt like a pest. And, mm. and it was really frustrating because I was trying to do it with my job, but my job was actually to challenge everything they've said is true. And so I lasted about just under three years and I got my CPA. I was just like, I was, I was deep. I was going on this track. Mm. 
And I'll never forget it. I was um, getting ready to go to the annual like training for our associates, right? And it was it was in Orlando and I was in Boston Logan Airport. And I remember I called my dad. They're like boarding and they're like, you know, everyone's like, I missed my gate. And um, I remember that they, they, they called my name and I said, dad, I just can't get on this plane. Like, I just don't want to go. And he's like, look, you should probably just go. But then when you come back, if you're just follow your gut. And if you, if you need to leave, leave and do something else. And for me, that was the moment where I decided that I was out. And so I, I went on the trip. Uh, ended up having a good time, but I came back and I immediately started looking for other jobs. And that's how I stumbled into my sales career. Yeah. I, I have a life philosophy that if something is like really digging at you in your, like this gut feeling. And uh, for me, it usually happens at like four in the morning. And if it like, if I wake up at four and I've got this like sickness in my stomach, I'm like, all right, something drastic needs to change. And that's, that's happened a few times, you know, professionally and personally. And I feel like that's the type of moment that you had there uh, at the airport where it's just like everything in your body is telling you like, all right, Ryan, we need to, we need to change paths here. This is not what I want to do for the next 40 years. Exactly. And uh, it's but I look back like the, I think one of the, my, my, the, the things I appreciate most about KPMG for me was learning what I'm not good at and learning mm. what I don't want to be doing. Because mm. then when you go into something else that turned out to be exactly what I wanted to be doing, um, I was so grateful and I worked as hard as I could. So I didn't have to go back to doing something I wasn't good at. And I didn't like to do. And a lot of people don't get that experience. And a lot of people start their career at a place that they love and a place that, that is right for them. And that wasn't me, right? I worked for a great company, but not in a role that I wanted to be in. And so I always use that as my fuel to, to hopefully be the best. So I could stay where I was, not go back. Before we get to sales, did you, uh, when you were in college, did you have different types of internships or were you just, you're on the accounting path and like, that's the type of stuff you did during the summers too? Yeah, no internships. Um, okay. I tried, I, I did some summer classes. I was ready to, to get out of college um, yeah. as quickly <laughs> as I could. And I also, since I transferred, I had to like make up some, some credits, but no internships and no knowledge also that like startups or sales was a thing. I knew like sales profession, but I always associated sales with like, you're probably selling a car or you're probably yep. selling insurance. I, I never thought of sales as like a B2B sale or work at a startup and help them find product market fit. It just, it wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. And, and you, uh, so you leave K KPMG, you head to HubSpot, which is probably one of, if not the best, uh, you know, Boston based startups to join. Um, just a great company, great leadership. Um, from what I hear, uh, I've never worked there, but just a great like sales foundation uh, for building your skills. So walk me through what that experience was like uh, heading into that world for the first time. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take a quick step back because I left, um, I left accounting and I actually took a entry-level sales job at uh, a company called Scavenger. And mm. that became Level Up, which then just, I think it sold last year to Grubhub. And um, the... My first job was actually selling, they called them diamond dashes, where we would use scavengers, like scavenger hunt technology. We would go to a city and we would give away a diamond ring for, to a couple so they could propose on stage. And <laughs> we would take them through a town and like they would do like all these crazy activities. And then we would sell sponsorships. So we would have like 500 couples and they would go to the, the wedding boutique shop or the flower store, or like we could take them anywhere through the technology. 
And then whoever does completes the tasks fast enough or however like gets the amount, most amount of points, they win a diamond ring. And I'll never forget it. Um, I, the first time I had to, I, they actually wanted me to be like the MC, which I like is not a skill set of mine. I'm actually like <laughs> kind of more introvert leaning, not as extroverted that, that requires to be like an MC for a big public event. And I was so nervous that I called off the winners in the wrong order. So I ended up giving the diamond ring to like the second or third place person, not the first. So I was like, no more, no more public MCing. Like I need to be behind the scenes sales one-to-one. Um, so that was my first sales job. And then I decided to do my first startup. So I left that job after I think a year and a half-ish. And I started a company with a friend of mine called Blogger Offer. And the okay. whole idea of blogger offer, it was like when daily deals like Groupon Living Social was hot. I was like, we're going to do daily deals for blogs, like bloggers with a massive audience. And here in Boston at the time, um, mm -hmm. Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports was the biggest blog. And so we called him and we had a meeting and we sold him. And so we ended up for a year uh, building and, and then selling all the deals through Barstool Sports. So it would come through his voice, but we sourced everything and we built the technology and like sourced all the inventory for the daily deals. Um, so that was my first startup and we ran out of money very fast, <laughs> about a year. Yeah. And then that's what drove me to HubSpot where I was looking around, like, what do I do next? And at the time HubSpot was about 200 people and I had never heard of it. I didn't know anything about marketing, inbound marketing. Um, but I, I got the job and that was my first formal sales training. I would say came, came from HubSpot. That's wild. Did you, um, it sounds like after KPMG, which, um, I don't want to misspeak cause I I've never done that. But to me, when I think about accounting in, in that path, it, it feels like kind of a safe path, right? It's like you get the CPA, you have a job for life. Uh, for me also that that's not, uh, the, not matching my skill set. We'll call it that. It almost feels like after that, you're like, well, I don't want to do that. Now I'm going to do just some like crazy stuff. And I'm going to, you know, <laughs> do these wedding ring scavenger hunts and start a company and join this, you know, small tech company. Was that like, were you just kind of like out for like almost the 180, like looking for adventure, looking for like, you know, kind of like high risk, high reward type of situations? I, I think that is an accurate summary. I, I remember um, at KPMG thinking to myself, it drove me crazy that I made the same amount of money as her name is Jen. I won't say her last name, but she was the top performer in my class at KPMG. She was so good. I made mm. the same amount of money as her. She was working harder. She was better. She was on the harder accounts. And I was making the same. It drove me crazy. I was like, she deserves so much more. And so I wanted to find a, a career that I could control my own destiny. And like, mm. I could be great and I could make as much money as I deserved or I was able to bring in. And so that is what initially led me to sales was actually seeing the, me as a average at best performer, um, making the same as a great performer. Um, but then I do think, yeah, I, I sway or swung pretty heavy, the opposite direction, like high risk, um, turned out little reward for the first startup that failed. Um, and then I would say HubSpot was, was the, uh, the sweet spot, which turned out to be, you know, very steady, very challenging and incredibly rewarding. I ended up spending uh, about six years there and saw that story from about 200 people through IPO. I think I left when they were about 2,500 people. Wow. Uh, 
I want to I, I want to get into HubSpot before we do that. What was it like to sell to uh, Dave Portnoy? I think a lot of listeners probably know who he is at this point. He's like, he, he, I mean, they've blown up to amazing proportions the last few years. Yeah, he we we went to his his house and we met him, and he was very uh, he's a really good business person, and he was not cracking jokes. He was very serious. He was really nice, and um, he taught me how to it's like a take a shot sale i would call it um we had nothing we had an idea yeah. and we said look we have everything on the line here you know this is our job and we think we can do a good job we just want you to give us give us a shot and in return we will work as hard as we possibly can we probably can deliver for you and three we gave him one percent of our company and that turned okay. out to be worth nothing <laughs> and, but, but that worked, right? I mean, he, he was like, all right, I'll take a shot. And um, we did, I mean, we, we generated a bunch of revenue. Um, he got a lot of it and it wasn't enough for us to, to live. And then, you know, obviously what happened with the daily deals, those kind of went bust, but um, yeah, it was, it was like the first, like someone is willing to take a chance on you. And I think um, I, I really, I, I think fondly of that sale. Yeah. I love that. What was the, um, to get to the HubSpot days, what, what was the sales culture like there? Um, again, I, I, as an outsider, I feel like I, I know a lot of people that have left companies that I'm at to go work there, or they've had a stint there. Um, people that have been there for years and years. So I'm, I'm just curious, what's the kind of like unique sales culture, uh, like at a place like HubSpot? Yeah. They, one of the things I remember, I interviewed with Mark Roberge and he was the head of sales at the time. Now he's, he's a professor. Yeah. Total legend. And, um, it was funny. I remember Mark saying, if we, he, in the interview, he's like, let's do a role play. And I did a role play. He's like that. No offense. Wasn't that great. So let's do it again. <laughs> but first here's some coaching, gave me the coaching, did it again. He's like, all right, you learned a lot. It was a lot better. Um, I, I, when you, if, and when you come to HubSpot, you're coming for your sales MBA. And a lot of the founding team came from MIT is where they met and they believed in it and they had the structure, they had the playbooks and it wasn't all figured out, but they gave you the guardrails to start. And then we refined over time. Um, but I remember Mark saying, I asked like the cliche closing question of, do you have any concerns that would stop you from hiring me? And he did say, he's like, my one concern is he's, he said, I think you will leave to start a company. Uh, so I don't know what, what teed, uh, teed him off or like what made him see that, but um, I ended up staying six years. So it didn't happen then, but obviously it then eventually did happen. So he saw that entrepreneurial spirit in the interview. Um, but I think what, what made HubSpot so, so great um, was the, the process they had in place. Yeah. What, what um, you're there for six years, um, you know, got a bunch of different promotions climbed through the company. I'm curious, like as a salesperson and then as a sales leader, um, what was kind of like your style and, and what helped you succeed uh, outside of everyone else? Yeah, I think early days, HubSpot's product was uh, definitely not the best. It was definitely not best in class. And yeah. um, however, we had the leads. So I learned, number one, follow the leads because we had the first shot at the business usually. And then someone would go check out Pardot or Marketo or Acton or Sprout Social. Or there's, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of time. And um, so we had the lead first, but we had a product that probably couldn't beat the other competitors. And so we had to learn how to sell based on outcomes versus like demo, like, like mm -hmm. check out this landing page builder. 
I don't really want to show them that because it won't look as good as it will for the for our competitors, but the outcome we can deliver. And the outcome was generate traffic first, convert leads, nurture leads into customers. And I think the magic sauce was from a sales perspective, we could just explain to them what they were already going through. Meaning we're on the phone with a prospect. Usually it was like a, for us, I was running the SMB segment. And so we were talking to sub 25 person companies and it was usually the founder. And we would say, look, you found us. How did you find us? And the person was like, well, I Googled something and then I found a blog post. I was like, well, then what happened? Like, well, then I saw a button to like download an ebook. Like, great. Then what happened? Like, well, then I got some emails from you. I was like, right. And now you're talking to a salesperson. This is inbound marketing. Like, do you want to do the same thing for your community, for your prospects Mm. that you haven't yet met? It was just, it was brilliant of being able to, to demonstrate that the product worked based on what they were going through. And it was that moment of like, they were just like, oh my gosh, I am talking to a salesperson. I am probably about to buy something all because found the traffic, converted, nurtured. I love it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very unique spot to be in where you could be like, yeah, the way that we got this meeting, that's literally what we're going to be doing for you, know, you and, and your whole team. Um, it, so you joined when there were about 200 people. Uh, you left post-IPO, you said, what, like 2,500 people. Um, you know, there's some folks that are listening that are also on, you know, rocket ships at some point in their journey, um, that might go through something similar. You know, I feel like that is happening right now where I'm at, at Gong and just in the nine months I've been there, uh, the growth has been crazy and it just feels like it's a new company, uh, every quarter. And I can only imagine for the people that have been there since day one, what, what, what tips do you have for being someone that can evolve and adapt uh, from, you know, scrappy startup to, you know, at that point, one of the fastest growing, you know, software companies of its time. I think, st- I, I think of starting my sales career at HubSpot. Um, I did some things before, but I think I actually really started my profession there. And mm-hmm. looking back, I, it all came down to the at-bats, meaning we had so many leads, so many bad leads, but so many people to talk to. And we just had the most amount of conversations. And I got really, really good at hearing no. And hearing no is not fun, of course, right? We, we, want to, we want to hear yes, but when you have so many leads or when you have the opportunity to talk to so many people, if you're convincing people to spend more time with you, you fail. And I think mm-hmm. that was the aha moment for me, like from a scrappiness perspective, which is it's actually my job to bucket people in two buckets. Like the first bucket is, are you actively evaluating us? And if you're actively evaluating us, let's talk about that. Or are you actively trying to buy? And this came from one of our, our, our my sale, our earliest sales managers. And he said, like, if, if you know the buyers, like you're really good at helping people buy, don't try to make people buy that are still evaluating because mm-hmm. those people will keep taking calls with you which I never understood why, but they will. So if yeah. you get really good at convincing people to spend time with you, you're going to spend all of your time talking with non-buyers. But if, if you can bifurcate that and truly understand the buy bucket versus the valuation bucket, you can then react accordingly. And going talking to people who are still in an, in an evaluation, it is perfectly fine that they do not buy. It is not okay if they don't tell you that they're not going to buy. Like it's your job mm-hmm. to find out. And so- 
we would seek the no and mm. politely, not really going negative, just more genuinely, like I'm trying to understand if this is real for you or if it's a good fit. Because if it's not, like I want you to not waste your time. I want to send you wherever you should go. Maybe I'll have a recommendation, but I also want to prioritize my time. And so just having the amount of repetitions um, allowed us to, to refine again and really learn how to navigate the nose somewhere else and like back into like the marketing team so they can nurture and sales resources got to focus on people who were actively considering buying or actively considering a competitor. Um, and, and, and I think in sales, we think of all of our opportunities as so precious where we have to do everything in our power to get them to buy but look at your close rate. Like the average opportunity to close rates like 20, 25%. Yeah. Right? So, so 75% of people are not going to buy. So if, if, you, if you really spend more energy thinking about how do I get better at no's versus how do I get ever into a yes? Like that was the magical moment for us. Um, and I think the best reps at HubSpot were the ones that were truly best at, at qualification, not the ones who gave best demo. Mm. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a trap, an easy trap to fall into, especially early in your sales career. If you're ambitious, you want to hit your goals, you want to exceed your goals. You just think, hey, if I can just get back on the phone with him or her, like this is going to be the one. And it's like the ninth demo and you're not going anywhere. And um, I've heard John Barrows say like, you know, the, 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 the best answer in sales is yes. And the second best is no. Right. Um, and so you want to get to one of those answers as quickly as possible um, to really vet it out. And again, like you, you don't want to waste their time. You don't want to waste your own time. So I think as we're all kind of like, you know, gearing towards uh, Q4, uh, getting close to that uh, this year, it's a good time to keep that top of mind uh, that you're making sure you're spending your time in the right places. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Get great at the nose. Um, all right. So, you, you crushed it at HubSpot, went through the IPO, uh, went to Envision, you were leading um, sales over there. And then at some point, uh, you know, Robert wasn't exactly right that you left HubSpot to do it, but he wasn't too far off. So um, talk to me a little bit about the inception of Vendor, uh, how that came into your mind and, and how you made it happen. Yeah, so I left HubSpot and I went to Envision I, to run their enterprise sales team. And Envision had um, a really strong freemium motion and a pretty low average contract value at the time, um, but they had the opportunity to sell to the Fortune 500. And I was really excited to do that because I was running the um, SMB team at HubSpot and I had never sold enterprise ever. And I took the job or I got the job. Um, for me, it was, it was because I got to do something new, um, but I still had something like when I left HubSpot, there was something in my gut being like, I don't know if I really am striving to be a CRO. It was just never, it was never my goal. I respected the CROs I worked for, like the Mark Robert and Hunter, he, he came in afterwards and um, just truly respected them. I didn't want their job though. I wasn't working to be the CRO. And so I reflected on that and I realized that I, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur and um, I had tried it in the past and I had tried a bunch of side hustles. I could go on for days about those <laughs> and they never worked. And they never worked um, usually because we, um, I wasn't able to build it myself. So I couldn't control the velocity. And 
I decided for to start Vendor, I said, one, it's got to be something I'm incredibly passionate about. Two, I've got to be able to do all of it at first on my own. And so on the passion side, what drove me nuts was sales. And I'm guessing a lot of your listeners can attest to this, and I'm sure you can, is the inefficiency of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like it would take me like 90 days to close a deal. And then again, right, 80% of them, 75% of them don't close. So, so what do we do? We create more noise and we send more emails. We make more cold calls. We uh, hire more marketers. We spend more on marketing. We create more noise because we have an inefficient motion. And so I thought I could either build a sales efficiency tool, um, but I think that is for the most part a solved problem. There are amazing sales efficiency tools um, like Gong, right? Like HubSpot, like SalesLoft, like Drift. There are so many great ones. I didn't think I'd be able to do it better than those. Um, So what I decided to do instead is just change how people buy. And if I can change how people buy, I can then craft the, the perfect sales experience, starting with the customer and then ending with the salesperson. Um, so that was number one on the passion side. I wanted to fix sales. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, I wanted to be able to do it all on my own at first, meaning I was the product. And the first couple accounts that um, that I earned when I when I left Envision, they were they were my first customer. They they were kind enough as I was leaving to say, "You should sell to us. You should like we believe in you. And if you think we have this problem, we will be your first customer." And they are a customer to this day. And uh, customer number two was HubSpot, right? So I went back to back to my alma maters and they were willing to give me a shot. And because of that, I had two marquee customers on day one and I was able to be the product where I would just buy all of their SaaS for them. And when someone at HubSpot or someone at Envision wanted a category and they didn't yet know the product, I could help. Or if they already knew the product they wanted, I could help. And so I would give them time back in the day so they could focus on, you know, building teams, building processes, building products, not figuring out procurement. Um, and I could save the company a bunch of money because as we know, I mean, sales for the most part, or SaaS sales, it is negotiable. And so on our side, I just wanted to find like, where's the fair price so that both sides are pumped up, right? Because they're entering a partnership. And the last thing you want to enter a partnership is uh, the lack of trust or feeling like you didn't get the fair price. And I don't think either side wants that because it enters the partnership with the wrong mindset. And so the goal initially was help people just get the right software at a fair price without having to pick up the phone, right? They can, we'll do it for them. Um, So that's how the idea started. And we've now been doing that for the past three years. So I'm curious, just going back to your mindset, right? Like you've been in sales at that point in sales leadership for almost a decade, probably like seven, eight years uh, between HubSpot and Envision. Um, I have to imagine making great money. Uh, I have to imagine like had some HubSpot stock, like things are going well for you in your career. Um, was it a big decision? Were you hesitant at all to like not throw that away, but to push that aside uh, to start your own journey that, you know, you're, you're kind of walking into the unknown? I definitely was, but I was also confident in my ability to sell. And yep. if you can sell, you're going to be able to find a way to make money. And so early days, I ended up, um, you know, I, I closed Envision, was our first customer. That was day one. And so I had money in the bank and I could live. 
day two, well, it was about three months later is when HubSpot became a customer. But I, I supplemented, I sold, um, I, I was a sales consultant for a couple of different companies and charging like five grand a month and helping sales teams find, uh, train their enterprise reps, for example. And that was um, really valuable at first. Um, but what I quickly realized is that is also a trap because mm. that is what I know. I can, I can make more money, probably more money than I was making in my sales jobs doing that but that's going to quickly consume all of my time. And so after those engagements, they were about six months long. I, I decided no more um, and just focused on, on building the business. And, um, but within nine months, I was making the same that I left. And um, for me, that was the point where it was my goal was to do it within a year. Um, so I knew that I was onto something. And at that moment is when I started uh, hiring our, our first team members. That's amazing. I'm curious, like in the future state of, of sales, right? I think all salespeople can relate to that friction that you talked about, right? Um, you've got them in your forecast, right? For, you know, the end of the year, uh, that's six weeks away. They might be just like stalling out, waiting so you get the best price. And then either you don't discount and they feel kind of robbed or you give up too much and then you kind of feel robbed and, and you, you can sometimes start the, the relationship which should be a multi-year long-term partnership together um, on rocky footing. And so I'm curious in, in the vendor world in, in the perfect world for you, like when do you step in and like, how does that, how does that even work? You know, let's just say, um, you know, I'm going and I'm selling to XYZ company. Like when do you come in and, and maybe familiarize us with like how that works? Yeah. So the, the, there's, there's a challenge here. The challenge is that, companies are not good at buying software. And I think the reason for that is because software is built for the user or the department head or you know, like the engineer, the salesperson, the support person, the marketer. And it's not their job to be great at buying. And so what they usually do is enter into sales processes. Like they convert on a landing page, start having sales conversations, but they haven't even told the finance team or the security team or the legal team. And so you end up, from the sales side, you're like, wow, I've got a deal almost at the finish line. But unfortunately, you don't because that person didn't do the things that the company requires. Mm -hmm. And so the, the problem that we, we occasionally have is that we're looped in last minute where it feels to the salesperson like it was like a bait and switch where all of a sudden like vendors here to like act as procurement and to like use urgency tactics and all this stuff. And I know as a salesperson, I would, I would hate that. Like that would be like the worst thing in my sales if I were surprised last minute because I'm trying to hit my quota. Like I'm mm -hmm. trying to get this deal in and the person I was previously talking to thought that it could come in on time. And now I'm talking to this brand new party, feels like we're starting from scratch. So the reason that that, that happens I believe is because of the problem of the complexities of buying SaaS. And mm. now companies can't just buy things. Like you need to verify that someone has like their SOC 2 certification. You need to verify like that the DPA is aligned. Like that is like mm. legal work that requires a lot of thought and a lot of time. So where we attempt to get in is as early as possible, yeah. right? And ideally, if I could say like, Tom, look, we actually have a customer that is the perfect fit for you. Like here it is. And by the way, we've already gotten everything approved. We've got finance, budget, 
uh, legal and security all tied up. On your side, we just need a fair price. And if you can deliver that, like you've got a deal and it literally can sign in 30 minutes. Like in that world, you are literally like giving me a high five (laughs) in the, in the former world. You're like, what the hell is going on? Like, I want to fight. Like I want to fight this and like try to prove that I'm a better negotiator. And the thing that I find so interesting is that from the outside, looking into vendor, people assume that like we think we're the best negotiators. We think that, uh, that we're incredibly passionate about like fixing all of procurement but we're not like, I actually don't think SAS should be negotiable. Mm. I think it should be variable, right? Because a small company coming out of YC buying Gong is worth something different to Gong versus a fortune 100 bank buying Gong. Right? Right. I fully understand and believe in variability in pricing. What we don't believe in is the opaqueness associated with it. And so if you can shine a light on the variables and empower your customer to maximize the price, right, in their favor, like that's where we went, right? And that's what we're trying to do. Um, And I think to to get there, it does require getting in the middle of the transaction because companies need the help. Companies don't have the time, energy, or desire to train every single department head to be an expert buyer. nor should they have to, right? But they have to because of how SaaS has evolved, right? Mm. It's hard to buy SaaS. And so like having the benefit of the doubt for, for us is always appreciated. Like when salespeople give us the benefit of the doubt that we actually are trying to help, even if it looks like we're not, right? Because we really are, right? And it doesn't always play out like that, but that's what I'm incredibly passionate about is like, and I'm getting worked up because I, I, <laughs> I really want to fix sales. I don't want to be the best negotiators in the world. I don't want to have to be the best negotiators in the world. Mm. I, and I can speak from firsthand experience of, of working with the vendor team that it is a good experience. It actually, um, and, and this leads to my next question is, what I think is so interesting is that the party that you're working with on the terms actually has no skin in the game. Like he or she at vendor doesn't like, it doesn't, um, you know, like they care about get they, they care about getting the deal done, right? They care about the deal getting done in a fair way for both parties. But, um, from what I understand, like there's, there's no, for the people that are, you're working with there aren't like commissioned reps to get deals done and things like that. They're just, they're there. And you know, that's what they, they say to me is like, Hey, I'm just here as like a, you know, a mutual third party. Like I'm just, I'm trying to help accelerate this and make it easier for you and easier for the buyer. And what I've heard is that, you know, that is, is kind of like a cool middle ground for people that love sales, love customer interactions, love problem solving, but maybe don't love the quota game. Uh, and as a lot of more SaaS companies, I feel uh, from what I hear and what I see are moving from quarterly to monthly quotas and harsher penalties and things like that. It offers that like kind of like um, interesting new type of like kind of sales-ish role without that, without that extreme pressure. Um, but would you say that's, that's fair or am I speaking out of turn? I think that is fair. Um, we have an incredibly talented team. We call it our buyer team. And a lot, of, a lot of them are former SaaS salespeople who were top performers. And for one reason or another, a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, 
uh, they decided what we say internally is like retire the quota. They're like, I yeah. love sales. I don't love the quota. I don't love the monthly grind of starting at zero. Some people love it. And some people that will, will want to always do that. What we found is a lot of people are ready for the next challenge mm. and flipping sides is fascinating, right? Like I remember I was our first buyer. I was a buyer for over a year and the amount of transactions that I personally did with the amount of different SaaS companies, like the interactions with salespeople, it teaches you so much. Like you learn how each and every other sales org is operating. Like you learn their sales tactics, you learn their sales style, you learn the ones who are uh, truly customer centric and the others who are truly like revenue centric. Like you, you, you witness it firsthand and mm -hmm we are in the camp that the vast majority of companies want to be customer centric, like the benefit of the doubt that they want to be. They just don't yet know how to, when it comes to the final stage, like the one yard line of closing business. Right. Mm. And um, so, so our buyer team also plays this interesting role as they evolve as helping companies like get the right SaaS, because as our customer base gets bigger and bigger, our customers ask us, well, what should we be using? And we are impartial, right? But we have a lot of data. So we understand like trends and momentum and you name a competitive situation, we can just show you <clears throat> what other people have selected. And not only that, why, right? And their sentiment, like if you, mm -hmm. if you decided to purchase a tool, what happened then, right? It's not just about like the review of when you've made the decision, it's then what happens throughout the life of that partnership. Because if you stay for 10 years, that says a lot about it. If you buy something and then churned after one year, that also says a lot about it. And mm -hmm. so I think that's how our buyer team evolves over time is really helping companies uh, make strategic decisions with their stack because software has become like one of the, the biggest points of leverage for companies. Like that's why people are buying Gong is it makes them stronger. They're growing faster. They're retaining better because of the power of your software, like that's happening throughout the entire landscape. So making those decisions is incredibly important. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. And I appreciate the free plug uh, for going there. Uh, <laughs> I want to, uh, as we're getting close to the end, I want to hit you with a couple rapid fires here for the last few minutes, if that's cool with you. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so first we're big learners on this podcast. What's uh, a book that's uh, either heavily impacted your life, your career, uh, you know, any topic is fair game, whether it's, you know, sales, business, fiction, whatever it might be. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple quick hits. I would say on the business side, never split the difference. Uh, it's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I started the company. I know you've had Chris Boss on the show. Um, number two, I would say a, um, a person to follow in that case would be Sarah Tavel from Benchmark. Um, she's mm -hmm. got great content, like hierarchy of marketplaces is content that really resonates with me. Um, in fiction, I would say The Alchemist. Mm, so good. Rant, quick side note, I love The Alchemist also. I just read another Paulo Coelho book called The Archer. Uh, like uh, while I was on vacation two weeks ago, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but get it. You'll like it. How does it compare? I mean, it's not, I mean, The Alchemist is like all time, all time great. Um, the Archer is like, it's, it's fall, it's, the story of like the world's greatest archer and he's like passing lessons on to this like young man that's works for him. And, you know, obviously all of the little lessons are applicable to really any craft that you're trying to develop. Um, 
and comparing like the bow and the arrow to different things in life. It's short, it's quick. And uh, I found it super uh, inspirational. Love it. I'll check it out. Okay. Uh, next up, uh, what's going on your Spotify right now? What, what, what music are you listening to? Oh, good question. I'm doing some, um, some covers. Uh, I'm just pulling it up. Angel from uh, Montgomery right now. That's what I've got going on. Um, but uh, I'm an old soul when it comes to music. I'm a very big Bob Dylan fan. Uh, okay. Visions of uh, Johanna is my number one. Okay. Respect. Um, any uh, like podcasts, YouTube shows, people you follow on LinkedIn or any, anyone like that that you recommend um, in like the business world that you follow? I've got a podcast hack where I think of a person um, or a company that I want to learn more about. And I search for that company name plus podcast. And then mm. I find a bunch of different podcasts that I had never heard of. Um, I would say one, you know, professionally for me is invest like the best. I'm a really big fan of that one. And they also do this thing called business breakdown, which is uh, really cool. They do like a deep dive on like Costco. That one's fascinating to listen to. Mm, I love it. Um, what, what's, is there anyone that's comes to mind that you've recently Google searched for that you want to learn more about like as a, a person or a business? Yeah, I would say the most recent was I, I looked up Klarna. I'm fascinated by that space, just watching all the I'm players. Not in the, like the, the buy now, pay later space. Oh, okay. Uh, Klarna was, I think, a Swedish company. They're the, the biggest in the space. But um, I went on a deep rabbit hole this past week on Klarna. I love it. Um, all right, you mentioned earlier you're a, a Cleveland Browns fan, uh, for better or for worse. How many wins are the Browns picking up this year? We're definitely going to make the playoffs. We've got a top five defense. Um, we're going to post. We're going to post twelve wins. <laughs> All right, you heard, you heard it here first. Uh, I, I don't know when the last time if they've ever won twelve games before, but um, well, I'm rooting for you. Um, last thing, any anything that we didn't touch on? Uh, you know, favorite quotes, favorite kind of thoughts as we head off. Um, that you know you might think are inspiring to someone that's listening to this podcast. I'll give you one from Y Combinator. Um, opportunity is abundant. It came from mm -hmm. Ali Rogani. He's the uh, head of their, uh, one of the heads of their growth fund. And the mindset of trust that more opportunity will continue to be pre uh, present in the future at a company puts you in the right mindset of just focusing on the core job today and not worrying about the next job. If you have an abundant mindset, not a scarce mindset, um, it'll help you stay focused and stay the best. And then you will end up getting all of the opportunities that, that you deserve and are ready for when the time is right. Um, and I'd say the second one is from HubSpot, just having been at a company that, that was out on, it was a rocket ship. Uh, there were a ton of new things to do. And I felt like every single year I got to take on more opportunity um, because the company was doing so well. So I think there's a lot to say with the, the growth of a company will lead to those future opportunities. I love it. I fucking love the abundance mindset too. Um, I, I love it. Um, my actual last question for you, who do you know that a friend of yours, someone you look up to admire that needs to come on this podcast? Jeff Epstein. Um, he is a, he's on our board. He's the independent okay. seat on our board, former CFO at Oracle, operating partner at Bessemer. He is the world's best uh, mentor and um, an advisor. He, uh, since we have salespeople on the call, 
last year, I think he, attrib- he was attributed to like 10 to 15% of our revenue. He's an wow. absolute beast. Wow. All right, Jeff, we're coming for you. Um, Ryan, appreciate you coming on. Uh, for anyone that wants to connect with you uh, or learn more about Vendor, what's the best place to uh, do if it's LinkedIn or your site or what, what's the best way? Yeah, uh, I'm active on LinkedIn, uh, Ryan New, and or shoot me a note, ryan at vendor.com. Awesome, man. Appreciate you coming on. Awesome, Tom. Thanks for having me. What's up, everybody? Thanks for checking out that podcast. Uh, happy July to you. Uh, would love if you took 22 seconds and hit subscribe wherever you're listening or watching this. Uh, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, your favorite podcast player. And be sure to check out some of my content on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Tom Alemo. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Tommy Tahoe. Have a great day. Make it legendary. Peace.